here today with Zuby, and we're talking about Bitcoin. How's it going, Alex? How you doing? I'm doing well, man. How do you feel about this uh, Michael Saylor news today? It seems like he's snatching up all the Bitcoin. Oh, I haven't seen the news today. Is he still buying it up like a madman? <laughs> yeah, he bought like 5,000 new coins. <laughs> so he's <laughs> stacked it, man. Uh, God bless him, man. Good man. I love it. I love the energy. Yeah, yeah, it's good incentive. Pick some up. So, where does your where did your uh, uh, Bitcoin journey begin? Um, so, I studied computer science at Oxford University, um, and I first heard about Bitcoin. I want to say relatively early on. Um, it's not something I really investigated and jumped into and got involved with until several years later. So it wasn't until 2017, I actually did any research on Bitcoin. And once I did, I was sold on the concept pretty quickly. I'm a very freedom and liberty and libertarian minded person. And the concept of having a deflationary currency, which is not owned by any particular government which has a limited cap and which is decentralized to me was a little bit of a no brainer. Um, I, it didn't take me that much convincing to be like, okay, this is interesting. This is a cool idea. This could potentially do for money and for the financial system, what the internet has done for information in general. So I got into it in 2017. I first heard about it several years earlier, but I think I thought it was just kind of like an in-game currency or like something like PayPal. I, I just didn't look into it. I didn't do my research. I didn't know anyone close to me who was into it, who could really explain it. And then, um, yeah, that's when I that's when I first got interested. That's when I, I first got invested during that 2017 period, late 2017, when it started to go a little bit crazy. Like a lot of other people, you know, was drawn in sort of looking at, oh my gosh, look at the gains, look at how much percentage is going up. And so I kind of got involved then. And then during that pain period through 2018, 2019, I never sold any, I never sold. I kept stacking my sats, but um, that was when I really, really did my learning and got a better idea of what it was all about and started speaking to more people within the community and reading more books about it. And all of that really strengthened my resolve. I mean, during that period, I was just mad. I didn't have more, more money to, to put into it because uh, I wanted to. But it's, uh, yeah, it's been a little bit of a journey. So coming up to coming up to four years now, coming up to four years that I've been involved in the space and been invested and been a holder of Bitcoin. And um, yeah, the conviction continues to, to grow, especially as the world continues to change in various ways and the concepts of freedom and liberty become more hotly contested and not even embraced by as many people and governments continue to print trillions and trillions of various fiat currencies. The role of something like Bitcoin to me has never been, it's never been more obvious. It's never been more obvious to me. So my conviction continues to grow um, as my skepticism and concern around some of the traditional models and ways of doing things um, as well as that concern continues to grow. What would you say some of your biggest uh, concerns are right now with the current, the way things are going? Dude, people are, people are falling into a slave state and have, have already have. I mean, we've got places which were previously free countries less than two years ago, which are essentially 
totalitarian police states. Hello, Australia. Hello, New Zealand. And not only that, but the large swathes of the people there are okay with it, right? They think that it's good. Um, and I'm not, I'm not wired that way. I'm not wired that way at all. So what's interesting to me is that for, I mean, if you look just at the 20th century, even people used to fight for freedom. Now people are fighting to have their basic freedoms taken away. They're fighting for the government to rule over them. They're fighting for the government to rule over other people. They don't think that you should be able to make your own basic choices and decisions for yourself, for your family, for your, for your body, for your physical and mental well-being, for your financial well-being. And um, there's never been, I've never seen such open authoritarian, open authoritarianism in the Western world. I mean, look at the Anglosphere, whether you're looking at certainly certain parts of the USA, um, especially some of the uh, democratic-led states, if you're looking at Canada, especially specific provinces, you're looking at the UK, uh, Australia, New Zealand, those two probably being the worst, and also looking at Western Europe, places like Italy, France, um, Cyprus even, it's all gone off the rails. I mean, if you were to just go back to January 2020 and explain to somebody what is going on right now, they wouldn't believe you. They'd call you a conspiracy theorist. They'd say, come on, man, that can't happen here. This isn't China. This isn't North Korea. This isn't Soviet Russia. That can't happen. And now the same people who would have said that are now openly advocating for it in many cases. So um, yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly what to make of that. It, it, it's bizarre. It's somewhat perplexing. It's not unprecedented because we've been here before in history. Uh, this is just happening again in a more technologically advanced way and under the banner of science. But um, it's, the same old, it's the same old authoritarianism. And the crazy thing is, this is going to like sound like an extreme comparison, but bear with me. I mean, Nazi Germany was also formed under the banner of science. And we haven't changed the monetary system fundamentally since then. I mean, we've deviated from the gold standard and severed that tie completely. And we've, you know, switched to fractional reserve banking. You know, and it's a very small uh, fraction. <laughs> Indeed. So to my mind, you know, the solution worth trying out and to some people, it just sounds ridiculous because they haven't put any time into researching it is, is Bitcoin. So, so what I'm, I'm wondering is, do, do you find Bitcoin to be probably like one of the best solutions we could pursue right now? Or I don't want to put that in your mouth. What, uh, what solutions do you think that come to mind for you? I think it's an important part of it. I'm not in the Bitcoin fixes everything camp. I think the problem is far deeper rooted than simply the monetary system. Um, that, is, that is a part of it because money is energy, money is power, and having control over money and finances and being able to leverage that obviously creates a lot of power for whether you're talking about individuals or governments or um, any entity, uh, corporations. But I think the problem and the poverty of spirits and of principles and of morality and the level of decadence and lack of spirit and morale, for lack of better terms, that's particularly been happening in much of the modern Western world. I mean, this was happening prior to any pandemic situation, but it's been so clearly exacerbated and exposed by it. So I think that 
sorting out the financial system and having a viable alternative is uh, is a part of it. But I don't think, uh, you know, there's some people who think who, no matter the problem, they say Bitcoin fixes this. And I'm like, no, Bitcoin doesn't fix every single problem in our society. Do I think it's a great thing? Yes. Do I think it's a fantastic technology? Yes. Do I think it's a wise thing for people to hold learn term, long-term and to invest in and to seriously consider? Absolutely. But do I think it fixes every societal problem? No. No, um, I don't. I mean, nothing does. <laughs> Human beings are inherently flawed. So no matter what system we have from monetary to political to social, there are going to be problems. Um, but I think that a lot of people have just become so unmoored from the things that make all the aforementioned countries such unique and wonderful places, both throughout the world and in history. I mean, if you really think about it, tyranny and authoritarianism are honestly the default human position. The notion of people being free and having individual rights and, and liberty and being able to make their own choices and do this and do that, it's a, it's a pretty unique proposition. That's not how human beings have existed nor exist for the most part. Um, I mean, prior to the prior to the USA existing, I mean, as far as I'm aware, pretty much every nation was some form of monarchy or dictatorship. So the concept of even having a free country, inverted commas, is, uh, is a new one. And even then, even when the USA was formed, it, was, it wasn't a free country for everybody. It took a long time to get to that period. People fought multiple wars for it, to get it, to defend it. And that's why I think it's so heartening that disheartening that people seem so keen to give it away. It's like people have become so so comfortable and flabby, <laughs> metaphorically and literally, that they just don't care. They're just kind of despondent about it. Of course, there are people who are speaking out and are, you know, protesting in different places and organizing and fighting against this sort of overarching tyranny, for lack of a better word, that, that's been going on, and which is not reasonably justified in terms of what the actual original threat is supposed to be. Um, but majority of people are, are not. And the, the health and safety line is a very powerful one. Because if you say that you're doing things for people's health and safety, then anyone who opposes it is automatically made to look like somebody who doesn't care about other people's health and safety or who is selfish or who is potentially dangerous or perhaps even trying to kill people, which we know is nonsense, but it's still a powerful tool which is deployed. Um, and I think there's no greater tyranny than one where people truly feel that it's in the sake of some of some greater good, right? If you just, um, like most human beings are, are decent, right? So if you had a tyranny or a ruler or an organization or something that was just openly evil, then there's limitations to that. But if that evil or if that tyranny is masked under, if it's, if it's masked as compassion or caring or health, safety, security, all of that, then you can lull people, you can kind of hypnotize them to the point that they will support what is their own enslavement, for lack of a better term. And that has happened. And some people will be listening to this and they'll probably think, oh, come on, like this is, this is just about health. This is just about safety. This is about protecting people. And I'm like, no, it's not. 
It's, it's clearly not. I could understand someone believing that for perhaps the first two or three months of the situation. But at this point, I mean, we're in September, we're in mid-September 2021. And I mean, you can't look at places like Australia and New Zealand and tell me that that's just about safety. I mean, New Zealand had one case, one case of this particular, they shut down the entire country. I mean, how can anyone even pretend that that's proportional? I mean, we, we know that there's tons of rules, no matter what city you're in, what country you're in, unless you're in one of the handful of places that's like really normal. There's all sorts of rules that don't make sense. It's not logical. It's not rational. At, at, at any point, I mean, you can point out, if you were to look at the past 18 months, you can, I'm sure off the top of your head, you can point out dozens of things that don't make sense and aren't consistent and are not scientific and are not logical and are not rational. And everybody can do that, right? Mm -hmm. So the fact that that's the point that that's happening and people are still going along with this charade is quite mind-blowing and concerning. So from early on, I always said that, you know, I've been far more concerned about the response than, you know, I think the response to the virus has been far more devastating and will continue to be far more devastating economically, uh, in terms of actual health, well-being, financially, looking at the impact on children, so on and so forth, mental health, physical health, other diseases, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's going to be far worse than, than the disease itself. And um, we're, 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 people seem to be caught in this strange fear loop where they don't want to just go, okay, it's, we're done. You know, it's, <laughs> we're, we're, we're done. Let's, let's go back to normal. Let's, uh, let's just live life. Um, okay, it's there. You know, we've had diseases forever viruses exist. There's vaccines available. There's treatments available. Let's just go back to normal life and stop trying to ram things down everybody's throat or use the threat of the government and use coercion and shaming and bullying and harassment, all these tactics, which are being deployed now to try to get people to behave in a certain way. Um, or even people saying crazy things like, you know, oh, if, if somebody doesn't get the shot, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe we should deny them healthcare. Maybe, maybe we should uh, not treat them and let them die. Maybe we shouldn't let you go to a grocery store or go to a restaurant unless you do. I mean, you, those, those things were not conditional prior, right? If you, said, yeah. if you said in January 2020 or even February 2020, perhaps even summer 2020, if you told people that you, you were advocating that perhaps people should not be allowed to uh, just do participate in basic society unless they took a specific medication, you, you, you would have been considered a psychopath. And it's still psychopathic. But somehow that kind of notion has been normalized and is even being pushed. Yeah, two things come to mind um, when you talk about that. Uh, one would be uh, Eisenhower's military industrial complex speech, uh, the first part of which you'll hear often mentioned, especially in times of military conflict, you know, recently in regards to Afghanistan. I see a lot of people post and talk about the first half of that speech. but. No one really mentions the second half of that speech, which has to do with taking science out of the hands of the government. It has to do with really not allowing the government to dictate what science is. And mm. you end up with this problem where today people say, rather than verifying uh, projects independently or looking to organizations to verify uh, any scientific endeavors outside of the government, what you have is people just simply citing, you know, the science says, the science mm -hmm. says, and that's not what science does, right? Science doesn't, 
<laughs> say things. Science is the best explanation um, of things so far. And you're, it's supposed to be open to anyone uh, to go and verify, you know, what is said, but, but I would challenge anybody to go find me a study that hasn't been funded in some form or another by the government. Mm. And I'm not saying it's a grand overarching planned out conspiracy, but there are certainly correlations between the government funding all of the science in some form or another that's happening in this country. And basically healthcare emerging and being widely acknowledged as a commodity instead mm -hmm. of a human right. It, it's a, it's a huge issue to me. Um, and, and I agree with you, you know, Bitcoin fixes everything. It's kind of like a meaningless thing to say in this case specifically, I'm wondering about your thoughts of, you know, Bitcoin giving people the capital and the security to fund their own research. And if maybe it could steer science away from kind of these meaningless, like research in the academic paper mill, you know, studying mm. things that matter, you know, if, if science is publicly funded, like on the free market, we're going to have more of a say and a better vote over what good science is and what we want research, which means we're going to study things that matter to us. And we're actually going to study this virus instead of just taking the mm. word of, you know? Yeah. I mean, look, sci if something cannot be challenged or questioned, then it's not science, it's dogma. Right. And we've, we've been seeing a lot of this. So why, why are even there, there are doctors and actual experts with, you know, virologists, vaccine experts, um, all sorts of people who are being being silenced, being censored, being pushed to the side, so on and so forth. As long, if they go against the narrative, and it's like it, with scientists, with science, you're supposed to start with a with a hypothesis, and you're supposed to test it, and you're supposed to try to disprove it, and you're supposed to welcome challenge. You're supposed to welcome questioning. If you're an expert at a subject, you should be open to people asking you questions. If someone is saying that they're an expert on Bitcoin, and then they don't allow anybody to ask them questions or challenge them or bring up objections, then is that person, that person certainly not a trustworthy expert, but this is what has been, has been going on throughout this entire period. And that's about as anti-scientific as you can get. What people are doing now is they're starting with a conclusion and then they're doing all sorts of mental gymnastics to get to it. Or even if the numbers don't really stack up in terms of the conclusion. They still draw the same conclusion. Anyway, um, to, 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 have, to give an example, we know at this point, I mean, 18 months in, we knew this three months in, but we know that, you know, thank, thank God that this particular virus is virtually impotent to children, right? Doesn't, you know, it's, it's, it's milder than a flu for children. Children are far more likely to die of a flu, which, which is good, right? This would be terrible if it were just sweeping through and killing, you know, thousands and thousands, let alone millions of children. However, you've got people who want to push to vaccinate people as young as under 12, despite the fact that the virus poses virtually no, no threat to them whatsoever. And you already know that there are potential adverse reactions, but because they're starting with this conclusion that we need to we just need to, we just need to, you know, jab everybody. They're not 
thinking of like, okay, wait, actually, what does what does real science say? Even if you're not even going into deep virology, just look at statistics, right? Okay, what are the survival group rates in different demographics? Okay, if you're over 80, okay, it's this. If you're over 70, it's this. Okay, if you have comorbidities, it's this. Okay, these people are at risk. These people are not at risk. And that information, which has been out there for literally 16 months plus at this point, that should be informing policy. But because people are just starting with the conclusion, they're like, okay, this is just what we want to do. And no matter what the numbers say, no matter what makes sense, we're just going to, we're just going to go with this anyway. I mean, this is literally happening as we speak right now. And that's concerning. That's a collective, that's a collective madness. So coming back to the question about Bitcoin, I think, um, you know, I, th I think Bitcoin is empowering in in general in general so whether it is held by individuals or institutions i mean one of the concerns about bitcoin to me as far as i'm concerned is you could ultimately end up with a similar situation to what we already sort of have right if you do have individuals whether that's very wealthy individuals or very wealthy companies who are just accumulating and stacking up vast vast you know billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of it then I do often wonder, okay, well, you know, long term, we won't we just end up in a situation again where the currency has changed, but the sort of power is still in the same places. I don't know. Uh, it might be an improvement, but again, you know, it's uh, I'm not I'm not an idealist, right? I, I try to be an optimistic realist. So I, it's it's an interesting question. It's not something I've really thought that much about in terms of the the scientific funding and how Bitcoin could play a role in that. So I'm somewhat just thinking out loud right now. Um, but I think, look, I mean, I, I think regardless of things you know not being perfect, a shift away from what we currently have and the corruption that that allows to even go unchecked because you can just print infinite money whether you're talking about war or you're talking about perverse incentives with some of this funding, so on and so forth. I think a decentralized move away from that is certainly better. I don't think it's perfect, but I think it's better. Yo, what is going on, plebs? We're going to take a break from our programming to tell you about the resurrection of our print magazine, starting with the El Salvador issue. Starting this fall, Bitcoin Magazine will be available on newsstands nationwide and at retail stores such as Barnes & Noble. Don't want to get off your couch, though? No problem. You can also go to store.bitcoinmagazine.com. So skip the line and get each issue shipped directly to your front door with our annual subscription. I'm talking four issues a year that contain exclusive interviews and profiles with leading Bitcoiners, actionable insights on the state of the market, breaking news and cultural trends, along with powerful photos and artwork from the best artists in the world. Subscribe today and get 21% off using code podcast at checkout. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, podcast at checkout. Yeah, that reminded me of, of one last thing on that note, which is that as far as I can tell, epidemiology is a pseudoscience. There's no constant measure that holds uh in the models of epidemiology like over the whole the whole thing if that makes sense like okay what, but, what do you mean what do you mean by that i mean that uh, epidemiology like 
very interesting topic to study, but it's a soft science, right? It's not a hard science. It's not biology. It's not chemistry. It's not mathematics. It's like this fun mixture of everything. Mm. And we're treating it as if it's a hard science and as if the word of epidemiologists is like natural law and like this disease will sweep through the nation and kill millions of people. And it's just like, well, they fundamentally got it wrong. They've been getting it wrong from the beginning. They're continuing to get it wrong and double down and probably cause more deaths out of depression and suicide than they've prevented. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's horrible, but, I see one of the problems there in being with this money printing problem that we have. I see a tendency for the government to not only set up shop in in foreign countries, right, that needs liberated, but to set up shop in new, potentially lucrative avenues at home, such as epidemiology, right, pharmaceuticals, another soft science right this is not that kind of medicine is not tried and true anyone that's been on prescription drugs can tell you that right mm-hmm. you're, you're on cocktails it's a, it's a working progress it's more of an art um with a lot of science um influencing it but it itself is not a hard science so mm. what seems to happen with, the, with those organizations abroad and at home is is once they're created they can it's very hard to defund them and destroy them because they create thousands of jobs, right? And they're really um, lucrative for those who created them and those who who get in early and those who work them, right? It's hard to tell someone who's made their money and fed their children from the government that this institution is, is bad. Yes. And, and you don't want to have to do that. And I mean, I guess you don't even have to make a judgment call on it, but, but to tell them that, you know, this is kind of a hollow vessel that, you, that you're working for. This is merely um, a, a, a way to create more power for a centralized institution and also a way to discreetly and rather insidiously um, offload inflation, mm. right? And just continue to give the public the illusion that the dollar holds value. but. But of course, I mean, you could argue with 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 any part of that. So, so I wonder, what do you, what do you take? What do you think about about just basic like inflation and Bitcoin? You've got a terminally scarce asset versus mm-hmm. an infinite asset. Yes. <laughs> what 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 does it mean to you? Well, I think this is an interesting thing because one of the biggest concerns from the lay person or the person who's not involved in Bitcoin when it comes to it is volatility and risk, right? It's always, you know, it's a risky, it's risky. It's not a sure thing. There's a, you know, it could go down. It's very fluctuates a lot. And these are in the short term, these are, these are all valid criticisms and concerns. And anyone who's been involved in Bitcoin for any period of time would have seen massive gains in terms of dollar uh, value or pound value and seeing massive drops sometimes in very short periods of time. But if you zoom out, I mean, what is guaranteed is that your dollar is going to be worth far less in 10 years than it's worth now. That's a guarantee. Uh, Same with the pound, same with the euro, every fiat currency we know five years from now, let alone 10 years from now or 20 years from now, it's going to be worth far less dollar per dollar 
then it's worth now. So that's that's a guarantee. Um, so with Bitcoin, can I tell someone with 100% certainty what a Bitcoin is going to be worth in you know five months from now or five years from now or 10 years from now? No. But if you, again, if we're looking at trends, and of course, a previous previous performance doesn't doesn't imply exactly what's going to happen in the future. But if you were to look on, say, a 10-year performance level or even a five-year performance level or even a three-year performance level, the trend is very much the opposite. In fact, to an exponential level, if you look at the price of Bitcoin in 2011 versus 2021, um, that, 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 that speaks for itself. Whereas if you look at the purchasing power of any fiat currency in 2011 versus now, that, that, that tells a different story. And you can go back even further with those because they've existed longer. You could go back and see, you know, what was uh, any, any item in the world, how much did it cost in dollars in 1975 or 1985 or 1995 versus how much it was now. And you see the real inflation there. So I think that we know that look, if you just keep all your, if you were to just keep all your money in a standard account and, you know, it's going to devalue, right? That the safest option is what feels like the safest option has a guaranteed risk, which is that every single day you're going to, money's going to be worth a little bit less. It's not going to even hold its value. It's, it's going to, it's going to lose to inflation. So if people want to even maintain their wealth, let alone build it, then they have to they have to put it into something. Now, Bitcoin is not the only option. There are people who are very interested in precious metals. There are people who buy stocks and bonds and index funds. There's a whole lot of different options out there, real estate. And you don't need to be limited to one of them. This is another thing that's interesting is people like to think in binaries. So you get people who are like, oh, like, you know, screw Bitcoin. I'd rather buy gold. I'm like, you could buy both if you want it, right? You know, like if you don't believe in one or the other at all, then sure, you don't have to. It's like, you know, I'd rather buy stocks. Than it's like, okay, well, you can buy stocks and Bitcoin and you can hold cat. Like you can, you can diversify across multiple asset classes. So I know people who are like 100% all in Bitcoin, bang, like that, that's it. They have so much conviction. That's, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I, I hear that. I'm, I'm closer to that than to... Uh, <laughs> than to the other positions. But I'm just saying that there's this thing that people do, and not just in this, but we live in this world of false dichotomies where it's either everything this or everything that way. And it's like, look, there, there's nuance here. No one, is, uh, no one is forcing someone to put all of your life savings just into Bitcoin or just into any, any certain thing. But if you're looking at, um, from a financial perspective, one thing that strikes me with Bitcoin is that it's an obvious asymmetric bet to me. I mean, it has been and it's proven to be, but if you're looking at it on any decently long-term period of time, let's say five years plus, maybe even three years plus, but certainly five years plus, then what you stand to gain potentially versus what you stand to lose, assuming you invest what you are willing to lose potentially, then there's no, there's nothing else. There's no other asset class that has such a track record of asymmetric returns. I mean, you, you could invest, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars into, into Bitcoin and it's possible. It's, it's, it's literally possible that, you know, you'll get a thousand percent return, even at this stage now, 
right? Maybe you're not going to get a, a million percent return at this stage, but it's still feasible that you could get a 1000% return on that within a matter of years. And that's not, I mean, the, what other, what other asset class is that even feasible? I mean, people tend to be pretty, I mean, people are pretty darn happy if they get 10%, let alone 20% per year on a typical investment. Some people are happy with as low as, as low as 5%. So to me, I think at this stage, it's far more risky for somebody not to hold any Bitcoin than to hold some. That's my personal view. I, I think that if you don't hold, hold any, then to me, that's the risky position. The risky position isn't holding some. The risky position is not having any at all. Because like I said, look, I, I believe in Bitcoin. I think that this uh, project and this, this, this asset is going to continue to grow in adoption and in use and in speed and in value. Um, but even if, let's say, let's say all the Bitcoin critics and the haters and the doubt, even if, even if, let's, let's say that they're right, right? Let, let's say, okay, that, that happens and uh, it doesn't go as far as it potentially could. Then again, if someone's followed the most basic rule of investing, then it's like, okay, you stand to lose that much, but it's like, oh, wow, what, what if the Bitcoiners are right? <laughs> you know, if the, if the Bitcoiners are right, uh, and they have been so far, then um, yeah, is that a boat that you'd want to totally miss? Especially, especially if you're a young someone on the younger end of the of the age spectrum here. I mean, this is a chance to create generational wealth. This is a this is a true chance. I mean, we've seen so many young people, people in their teens, people in their twenties, people in their thirties, who have really, in a relatively short space of time created so much wealth for themselves, which, which they own and they control. And they're not just at the mercy of, uh, you know, whether it's, a, it's an employer or the, uh, the Fed or the central banks, then um, yeah, I'm kind of rambling a little bit here, but I, I just think it's such an asymmetric bet at this point that um, like, look, I, I don't, ultimately everyone's money is their own money, right? I'm, uh, I, I have no interest in, uh, forcing anyone or advising anyone exactly where they should put their money. But um, uh, to me, anyway, to me, it's, it's a very obvious, it's a very obvious play. And it has been for multiple years. And given all the other adoption curves that I've seen in my lifetime, from the internet, to cell phones, to smartphones, to various social media platforms, the, the Facebooks and YouTubes and Instagrams, I've seen all those, I've lived through all those adoption curves. And one thing I've learned is that yeah, you know, technology that is that is valuable, it always inevitably it inevitably wins, right? It, it inevitably wins. You can't really slow or stop technology in any tangible way, provided it's making things better and providing value to people. And I think that Bitcoin is doing that. I think that in our interconnected world, the necessity for a, I mean, it just, even just on a pra very practical level. As someone who does a lot of business and, and travels a lot, I mean, I'd rather be paid in Bitcoin than be paid in pounds or dollars. Like it's 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 easier, it's faster. The fees are much lower. Um, it can be done without like some middleman where you have. I mean, the, the traditional bank. I'm in the USA right now, but I'm from the UK, and just getting paid for certain things can be some. It, it can it can be annoying in certain situations, especially if you have to deal with the legacy banking system 
it's annoying. It's slow. You have to go around on foot sometimes and do this and do that and show this idea. And that's like, dude, like I'd rather just ping you my Bitcoin address and you can just send me what needs to be sent. So I think uh, the use case to me on multiple levels is, is obvious. Yeah, especially like international kind of very frequent traveler like yourself. I mean, it mm-hmm. can take can take two weeks for final settlement to occur between central banks. Exactly. Uh, final settlement happens on the Bitcoin blockchain every 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And after pointing that out, I always like to add that um, final settlement never occurs in fiat currencies because you are always subject to the risk of having your funds confiscated. You're always subject to a bank run. And people think these are unlikely events, but they happen mm-hmm. in countries every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, every single year, people go to the bank and they can't get their money out. And, and, yep. and the bank's closed on the weekends. I mean, you can't go <laughs> withdraw. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's, there's all kinds of problems with that. But I actually want to go back a second um, and push back on one uh, comment that you made. Not, not oh, sure. on your comment particularly, but the volatility, it's always interesting to point out for people who maybe perhaps haven't thought in this way before. It just says a thought experiment. Just There's always going to be volatility when you have an infinite asset, such as the US dollar, which, which by infinite asset, I mean, it prints perpetually. They will, they will never stop printing. There's no, there's no reason for them to. The incentives to print are always greater than those not to for the people who control the money printer, right? So, so we have this infinite asset paired with an infinitely terminally scarce asset, which is Bitcoin. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. And so this is like the basis of number go up technology and a lot of people come to bitcoin to get rich they come for i definitely came i was trading options and trying to become some kind of like day trader uh, and i was trying to get rich and fortunately i came for the number go up technology but i stayed for for the bitcoin you know Mm -hmm. i don't plan on trading my bitcoin back into us dollars because i believe that i hold the superior asset Mm. on almost every level why would i trade a superior asset for an inferior asset Mm -hmm. um and the distinguishing factor there is bitcoin until adoption you know grows to a certain level right like we don't live in el salvador so bitcoin is not the superior currency but it is the stronger asset it is the better store of value um it will go up in price compared to the dollar, but more importantly, it won't go down, right? Yes. All of my Bitcoins will remain mine. <laughs> you know, they're not going to be debased. Well, it's worth pointing out that inflation is still happening, but terminally, right? The rate of inflation for Bitcoin is slower than I'm consuming it. Like the end goal is 21 million. So it's not going to be debased arbitrarily. Like the inflation schedule is public. Everyone can read about it and learn about it. Um, so it's just, it's just kind of fun. And I wonder if you've considered that, which is like the most like right end of the spectrum, like Bitcoin maximalist position, which is like, mm-hmm. I denominate my life in Bitcoin now. I'm on a Bitcoin standard. Like, what do you, what do you think of that? 
I think it's, I think it's possible, right? I, I think it's possible. I mean, I don't think that, I don't personally think that fiat currencies are going to, are going to go anywhere. I don't think the governments are ever going to be like, oh, you know what? We're just going to use Bitcoin. Like, <laughs> let's, uh, let's trash the dollar. Let's, let's trash the euro, et cetera. Like, I don't believe that's ever going to happen. But I do believe that Bitcoin is going to continue to grow and grow to the point where we do denominate things in Bitcoin and Satoshis in, in, in general, right? In general, I can see that, you know, and I, I don't think this is happening next year, or I don't even think it's happening in five years, but I think that within, say, a generation. So just like we have, so just, just like kids growing up now are, are you know, even people not, not just kids, right? Even teens now, they're very much digital natives, right? They've never lived in a world without the internet and without social media and perhaps not you know, with smartphones and all of that. So there will be a generation where all of this, just like we use the internet without even thinking, if you were to ask, if you were to ask most people to, to explain what the internet is, even people who are pretty tech savvy, most people can't do it, right? We, we know what the internet is. We use it every single day. But most people don't really don't really know what it is. It's just like it's just it's just the internet. It's that thing. It's always there. We connect to it. Wi-Fi, 4G, 5G. Like you know, it's the internet. I think that Bitcoin could reach a level where it's like that, where it's sort of spoken about almost in the same way of the internet, where you will have people, you will have the tech heads who really get it and understand it and have have thought about it deeply and know the ins and outs. But you'll have the the, the lay person, for lack of a better term, who uses it and owns it and trades with it and, and uses a store of value and so on, but they're not even really thinking about it. So right now, if you're into Bitcoin, especially if you're like a you know, Bitcoin maximalist or like a Bitcoiner, then you're, you're still, it's still fringe, right? You know, people may have heard of it, but, it, but it's kind of like the fringe thing, which is still a little bit a little bit weird. But like I said before, I remember when people who were into the internet were a little bit weird. When people who had email addresses were a little bit weird. Oh, that guy's got a, 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 a mobile phone. Like, why do you have one of those? Like, what's, what's the point? Right. I joined Facebook in 2004. When, in 2004, what did people say with Facebook? What's the point? Like, no one's using it. What's the point? Um, you know, what's, where's the value? And then people did the same with YouTube. People did the same with Instagram. People did the same with all of these platforms. And now it's a no-brainer why Facebook is valuable. It's a no-brainer why the internet, why with Amazon, man, Amazon was a joke for a while. People used to make fun of Amazon. People thought, oh, Amazon is you know, a failure. Why would, why would people want to buy books online? What a stupid idea. And now, <laughs> you know, and now people are complaining that Jeff Bezos has, has far too much money, that he's even going to space and stuff. So I think we're, I think we're just on another adoption curve. I think we're just on another adoption curve. How big it gets and how ubiquitous it becomes, I don't know. I cannot, I cannot predict the future, um, but I can certainly see a future where we just use, where, where literally, I think where people use Bitcoin and use the network without necessarily even knowing that they're using it, if that makes sense. Um, it just becomes as ubiquitous as, as the internet. And this is just what, it's just what people do. It's how people transact. And it's just very normalized. So I could see that. I could see that happening. I don't think it's a straight line to get there at all. I think uh, there's going to be uh, all, all sorts of battles along the way and hurdles and 
things that numbers that go up and numbers that go down. Uh, but I think in the long term, that would be, uh, yeah, I think that's realistic. And I also think it would be, I also think it would be better. I think it would be better to have more people using a decentralized form of money and store value, which they have more control and sovereignty over, which cannot just be inflated infinitely at the will of people who you don't even know and you don't even know how much is being you don't even know how much of it is being made um because because it, it just it makes more sense it, it does make more sense and i also think that even compared to another store of value a lot of people call bitcoin digital gold so even compared to physical gold again everything else the world is going digital things have been going digital for for decades so i don't think that a child born now in 2021 when they are 20 years old I think they're more likely to hold and be comfortable with holding Bitcoin than having bars of gold stashed up in a safe. Um, I, I just think that's that's the way the world has been going. I don't see any obvious reasons why that would suddenly change. So I think that the market cap of, of Bitcoin is going to continue to increase in whatever you measure it in. Yeah, I agree with you. It's hard to imagine um, scenarios when you put in the time and you understand, I don't know, let's, let's say you put in 100 hours to, to studying Bitcoin, I think after that point, it's kind of hard to think of scenarios in which it doesn't work any longer. Like outside of unforeseen consequences of upgrades, right? Like you can only, you can only prepare for software bugs that you've imagined. And so there's always like this whole sector of problems that just no one thought of. That will happen. I mean, this is the same thing with COVID too, right? Like, I don't think Fauci intended for like all of these consequences, and I don't think anyone foresaw what would happen. Um, I'm not saying they were acting. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just don't want to give them too much credit. I don't think it was all. You know, there's unintended consequences to actions, I guess is all I'm saying. So so I could see that taking the network down. I could see if, if governments, Bitcoin predicates on governments behaving irresponsibly mm -hmm. with the money. So if they came out tomorrow and said, like, we're, we're done printing any more money, if they somehow made it so that they couldn't print any more money, you know, or we're returning, we're going to fix the dollar, we're going to peg it back to gold, something like that, mm -hmm. uh, I think would really put put a dent uh, in like global Bitcoin adoption because people might not see a need for it. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't think that scenario is very likely. Um, are there any other like threats to the network that you perceive or that maybe like, like let's say if you don't identify as a Bitcoin maximalist now, like what, what are your reservations? Like what are your, what are your, what are the negatives of Bitcoin? What are the negatives? Um... I mean, so I mean, I, I don't call myself a maximalist because by definition, I believe that would mean that I don't hold any other cryptos at all. Um, and if I said that was the case, that would be a lie um, because there are others and there are others that I think uh, have long term value. I think, you know, 99% of them are maybe you can get cash rich off of them by by flipping and trading. But, um, you know, there, there's Bitcoin is Bitcoin and then there's then there's everything else, but I think there's a uh, other interesting decentralized projects that are that are happening. Um, so that's that's a part of it. In terms of other, in terms of other threats, I mean, I think we've we've talked about a lot of them, and some of the, a lot of them have already 
happened. We have seen governments come out and try to try to crack down on the currency itself or on the trading the currency or on mining the currency. Uh, China's done that multiple times. I think I believe India's tried to do it. So there's going to be random types of governmental crackdowns or regulations. Some of them may play into Bitcoin's favor. Some of them will temporarily uh, go against it and make people scared. Um, I think perhaps the, I haven't looked into this in, in massive detail, but I know there's people who are concerned about the level of centralization of some of the mining. Um, I don't know all of the implications of that in all honesty. And um, what are other, other threats? I don't know. I think, I think in the short term, because as I've said before, I think in the short term, there's, you know, there's also the, the threat of human emotion, right? Of, of, of human emotion and, and psychology and, and, and groupthink. But I think in the long term, on a longer term timescale, I think it's such a sound form of money with such a solid value proposition and such solid technology that I think it's going to it's going to win. It's going to continue to grow. What winning looks like, it's very hard for me to, to say. I know there are some people who think, okay, there's going to be this future and everything is just in Bitcoin and the, the, the whole central banking system has been taken down and this and that. To me, that's a little bit, I, I stay away from utopian thinking on any, on, on any side. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't know if it'll be that sort of you know, Bitcoin utopia, but I think it's a move towards better. I think it's a move towards yeah. more freedom, more sovereignty, um, an ability for people who, especially in developing countries who, who have, you know, in places where you do actually potentially get hyperinflation or where banking is really difficult. I mean, we in the West, we, you know, our, our banking system and monetary system for all its flaws it's still pretty solid, but there's a lot of people in the world. There's billions of people who live in a place where the currency could just, in a week, just go to go to nothing, right? Um, or be massively devalued. And so, for people, someone like that, uh, the vol the, the short term volatility of Bitcoin is is a, a much lower concern than it might be to someone who typically operates in pounds, euros, dollars, which tend to be more stable and predictable. <laughs> Yo, my fellow Bitcoin lovers, have I got something specifically curated for you. The Deep Dive is Bitcoin Magazine's premium markets intelligence newsletter. This isn't some pay group selling buy and sell signals. No, this is a premium Bitcoin analysis led by Dylan LeClaire and his team of analysts. They break down in an easily digestible way what is happening on chain in the derivatives markets and in the greater macro backdrop context for Bitcoin. This newsletter turns volatility into a joke. So hit up members.bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code podcast for 30% off the deep dive. That's members.bitcoinmagazine.com promo code podcast for 30% off. Divorce your pay group and learn why Bitcoin is the ultimate asset by Dylan and his team. My fellow plebs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four day long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. 
This has something for everyone. Whether you're a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. You want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. Yeah, and there's there's kind of an important um, piece of the puzzle to address there, which is like, I don't think Bitcoin has any inherent value. I don't think anything has inherent value, right? Like value is subjective. If you and I were to go to Afghanistan today, which I mean, the people of Afghanistan, like for the most part, as far as I know, don't actually consider themselves to be like a cohesive nation, right? So if you and I were to go out there and to go out into the desert and find a group of people, don't really consider themselves to be Afghanistanis, then trying to get them to adopt Bitcoin would be kind of like ludicrous like it wouldn't make any sense to them there's no reason for them to value this thing unless yes. they have like a cell phone and access to the internet in which case it's, it's a very good value proposition mm. but you do have to have i think access to the internet um not to keep your bitcoin but to to, to learn about it and, and, and to kind of like spread it among the population initially mm -hmm. so anyway what i'm saying is like for people the, the, the value is subjective, like other people in other parts of the world are like, would value, they would way rather get like a goat or like, mm. like a gold bar, like far more something, something that is a token, right? There's two kinds of monies. We have like tokens, which are like coins and dollars and like a long history of tokens. And then we have ledgers and Bitcoin is a ledger, right? And we have traditionally only had centralized ledgers where one person is keeping the till or two people or two centralized entities and they're swapping these central banks are swapping their, their transactions back and forth, right? That's the ledger form of money. Um, the solution that Bitcoin brings is a decentralized ledger that everyone could participate in. But until or unless you understand that, then I can understand how it would just seem like a joke, like there's no need there's no need for anyone to have it or like it's a luxury that, you know, that we can sit back and we're so well off just like invest in Bitcoin. But mm -hmm. I think it's interesting to point out that like, it's, it's kind of the opposite. Like I didn't have any money before I started um, saving through Bitcoin. And, mm -hmm. and I thought that was just, it was, I was always like trying to explain to like my parents and family, just like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I just can't save money. I did two decades on this world and it's either my fault or I don't know, but I just can't seem to like get a foot forward and I can't mm -hmm. seem to save money until I found Bitcoin. And then mm -hmm. it just, it clicked. It's like so simple. Like it's not, you know, the number only goes up. Like I, you, yeah. just, you just accumulate and accumulate. Um, so what I wanted to say there is that often much in the way, um, you can explain like an abacus to someone who has used a calculator like bitcoin is a simpler technology 
that makes it easier to understand the very uh, convoluted and like complicated technology of fiat. So like that mm. is to say, did you did you find when did you find your understanding of money and, and economics in general um, that it expanded when you started reading about Bitcoin? Like, would you say? Yeah. That, that was my experience. I mean, yeah, most most definitely, most definitely. I think I I had already, I I'm no I'm no expert on money and the history and the intricacies of the monetary system, but prior to getting involved in Bitcoin, I, I knew I knew it probably more about I knew more about it than the average person, which isn't saying that much because I don't think most people really know don't really think mo- much about money, right? They 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 know. Again, on a surface level, on a superficial level, they understand it, but very few people really think about, okay, what is, where does it come from and what gives it its value and how much of it is, you know, how much of it is even paper versus, you know, some people say, oh, Bitcoin is just, uh, it's just ones and zeros. I'm like, mm, so is most fiat. <laughs> it's not all, it's not all physical uh, paper or plastic money. It, it's also ones and zeros that are, generated again even trying to explain it myself i'm like i don't totally i don't totally get it when they print a trillion dollars what exactly what exactly does that mean right i like i, th- I think they add some ones and zeros to a ledger maybe but i, I don't i don't get I, I don't really know and it's that's part of the problem is the op- opaqueness of the current system right with bitcoin it's like at least it's it's transparent right so you know its issuance rate you know what the cap is. You know when the cap will be reached. You know how much is currently in circulation at all times. Do we have, do we know how many dollars are in circulation? I don't know. Maybe maybe it can be found. Like, I I don't know how many new dollars have been created today. I don't know. Uh, same goes with all these other currencies. So I think transparency. I'm a big fan of transparency in general. I think that having something that's transparent is it le- it leads to more honesty. I think a big problem with what we currently have with the financial system, just like with the media system and with the uh, pharmaceutical system and the health, like lack of transparency, lack of honesty, and just being clear. And all of us just being able to say, okay, that's what's, that's what's going on. There's always smoke and mirrors and misc, you know, this thing is hidden. And that is, you don't, you don't, we don't know. We, we, we don't know, you know, there's people even involved in governments who are running things and making huge decisions. We don't, we don't even know who they all are. Uh, there's just this, opaqueness and i think that or opacity even i think is the correct word i'm not sure um and so i think that transparency i mean the only thing that's opaque with bitcoin is who created it that's the one thing that's that, that's unknown but beyond that we, we know and if someone is techie enough to even want to go and look at the code and read through the white paper and all of that then they can see again transparently what what's going on so that in itself, I think, has has a lot of value. I think um, we need to shift from, in general, I think we we need we need to shift from dis untrustworthy entities to trustworthy entities. I think that's something that's just needed across the board right now. There's or, or too perhaps, much. Go ahead. Or sorry to interrupt, but perhaps removing our need to trust entities, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a part of it. You know, I, yeah, being able being able to to verify things rather than simply 
trusting them off of off of faith, shall we say? That's certainly that's certainly important. What are what's the most bullish thing happening to you right now? In, happening in, to in me? Bitcoin. Happening. Yeah, oh, yeah. in Bitcoin. Not <laughs> to you, but in Bitcoin. Like what's what's bullish to you about what's happening in Bitcoin? I think the fact that more and more people are learning about it. You know, whether that's because they're FOMOing in and trying to, you know, get get rich quick, um, or because they're really looking into the technology or they're reading or they're hearing about it. I think that's all good. I think the first step to understanding anything is to be aware of its existence, right? So the more people who have at least heard about it, that's that's very bullish to me, right? When the average person, most people are like, okay, I've at least heard of Bitcoin. Maybe they don't know what it is and they have lots of misconceptions or they think it's just for criminals or whatever. They think it's magic internet money. At least they, they've heard of it. That's the first point. And then beyond that, then you can, people can learn. I think most people... With with everything, and certainly with something like Bitcoin, most people get into it without really knowing, really knowing what they what they're doing. Right? It's it's kind of like you 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 stumble into it somehow. You like the idea, or you want to you want to make some money, or you some, hear about it on YouTube or in a podcast or whatever, and you get involved. And then over time, you you do that due diligence, and you do that learning, and you have those conversations, and you listen to the questions and the challenges. And you respond to them. And over time, each individual works out, okay, does this make, does this make sense? And there, look, there's going to be some people who the concept of Bitcoin, for whatever reason, for all sorts of various reasons, it just, it doesn't vibe with them. Or they don't think that it's, uh, you know, they don't think it's a great idea. Or they, they think that the, the risks are far too high. Or they're worried about this. Or they're worried about that. Or perhaps they just very much trust the the state and the state apparatus and the central banks and so on or perhaps they're even invested to do so they have a they, they're so bought into that system that anything that could potentially challenge it rather than that being a positive thing like it might be to uh, some of us that's something that they view as a, as a negative right they think that the fact that it's oh my gosh it's not controlled by any government to some people that makes them go yeah awesome that's the point uh, other people that makes them go oh oh I can't I, I can't buy that, right? It has to be has to be protected by something. Um, so, yeah, those are uh, that was a long winded answer. But I think what is bullish is the number of people now. Just the level of awareness, I think, is a, it must be at an all time high, and that's going to continue to grow. Because once someone knows about it, then they know about it, even if their opinion is uh, neutral or negative, they now know what it is. Whereas I think if you were to go, if you were to go back just a few years ago. At any given point in time, less people had even had even heard about it. So that to me is bullish. I think it's bullish that um, individuals and you know whether it's the Michael Saylors of the world, MicroStrategies, or you know Elon Musk getting involved with Tesla, those things are also bullish. Not because I particularly care that a particular celebrity or big company is getting involved, but because it provides a green light for more mainstream adoption, right? It, it provides pe- people who do need to watch somebody they know or some big company they know to sort of get involved and to take that plunge. Sometimes that's what's needed for them to have the green light to at least look into it, to at least go, oh, okay, 
if Elon Musk is buying Bitcoin, maybe, maybe I should have a look. It's not just these weird people on Twitter. Maybe I, maybe I should have a look because, you know, I like Elon Musk. I trust Elon Musk. I, I own a Tesla. So maybe I should have a little look. So all of that stuff, uh, it helps to put it on the radar and get people involved. And I think things grow from there. As someone who's written books and released, you know, music and, um, you know, your, your own podcast and just a generally like a very creative, active person, do you find that copyright laws hinder your process and your access to certain knowledge and tools? Like I, I believe, for example, that the world would be better off if everything were open source. I, I don't see, I don't see ideas as something that can be policed effectively except through force or, or threat of lawsuit. Mm. And I'm not entirely convinced that, that keeping certain things from people, even just like plagiarism in books, like what, what what's the purpose of attributing this idea back to, to one or, or other person when the important thing is that the knowledge spreads sort of memetically and then mm. we all grow as a society, right? Like if you can gr agree that that's a good goal, that it's very good that we all get to use the idea of a wheel, mm -hmm. then you could work, you could draw that to the conclusion that like, you know, these copyright laws are sort of a hindrance. And, and I think the reason that I think this relates is because a lot of Bitcoin projects, the best of them have all been open sourced. And mm -hmm. they end up being the most heavily scrutinized, um, secure, like transparent projects. And it's, I, I think it's great. But I just wonder, as, as an artist, what, what do you think? Um, I'm strong for intellectual property. Um, intellectual property rights, I think, are, are very important. Um, and I think, of course, it's, it's up to the creator. You know, if you're a musician and you want to put something out there that is that anybody can do anything with, then that's as the creator, that's your that's up to you. That's your that's your choice. If you re if you release a video game and you're like, look, anyone can mod it or patch it or do whatever the heck they want with this code, then I think the person who creates it uh, should should call the shots on that. I, I do believe in intellectual property rights for sure. I think without it, actually, uh, I don't know, like, I mean, as a creator, there, there also has, has to be an incentive. I mean, if, if anyone could just, I don't know, take a piece of music, if uh, anyone could just take it and do whatever they want with it and, and then even profit off of it themselves, then the, the incentive to create anything cool, or if you think of like patents and things like that, then that profit incentive, I think, gets gets destroyed and i think also as a as a creator you do want to be attributed for the things that you created if you have a, a have something that you've you've put out there and you know someone i don't know if you've written a book and people are like quoting it and whatever they're not even giving you the 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 basic credit i'm not even saying they have to pay you right but they're not giving you the decency of just saying oh yeah i got this from such person and they're kind of passing it off as their own work, then yeah, that doesn't, I don't like that. I don't like people even, I've had people, you know, even take things as simple as my tweets and like take my name off yeah. of them and then post them as if it was their original thought. And I'm like, that's not cool. You know, you could just, I'm not saying you can't share my tweet, but 
like at least say like you know this is a <laughs> this is a quote from this guy you know yeah so that, that that's kind of my thought as a as a creator i i like that i'm a mm. you know i've played music for 13 14 years just not privately i used to perform but i just like play guitar myself. yeah um been writing for a very long time and i agree with you i have the same impulse to take ownership of my ideas and but it's very hard it would be very difficult if not impossible for me to have finished any project that i've done any article that i've written uh-huh. any essay to have edited any book that i edited without other people and without uh-huh. using their ideas um even just vaguely in a permissionless way, right? Like there's mm-hmm. things that we all carry in our heads that we can't attribute to. Oh, absolutely. Ways. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. and it seems like, I just wonder where that impulse comes from. Like if you take, like, let's say that we're well off, like we both, let's say the world's on a Bitcoin standard, right? Just theoretically, if you mm-hmm. and I both have capital that we can allocate to do whatever we want with. Mm-hmm. Why do we need credit for our ideas if we're if we're financially stable and we have a good monetary system and we're getting mm-hmm. compensation? Why do we need continued? Is it just like a respect thing, or, or what do you think about that? That's an interesting question. I th- I think it's a I think it's a respect thing, and I think like you know human beings are we we value we value our own labor, and that includes intellectual labor so just like if you were a carpenter and you literally physically built something with your hands then you want credit for it because there there's value in that there's value in that so just like you of course you wouldn't want someone to physically steal your chair come along and take your chair that you just built with your own hands you also if you have an idea although an idea is more intangible but but an idea everything starts as an idea i mean you can turn an idea into something that is you know real whether it could be it could be a physical painting it could be a piece of music even if it ever exists in the digital realm you've created something from that idea so for someone else to take it without credit let alone take it without credit and then profit from it that is that's that's not cool because that is your that's your work and it, it has value and you want other people. I think it's because you want other people to recognize it. You want so other you, people to, yeah. So, so you're attributing like ideas, kind of treating them as property when you've put a, some, some level of work in, they kind of move. Into yeah. To, 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 to some, to some degree, especially if you've, especially if you've, you've taken it, you know, if you just have a thought, right. If you literally just have a thought and you haven't articulated it and someone else has a similar thought and then they are to like, you can't then be like, oh, hey, that guy, that guy took my idea. <laughs> but, but if you had an idea and you, you make something with it, it could be a book, it could be a piece of music, it could be uh, even something you say on a podcast or something you write on Twitter or you write on Facebook, and then someone else likes that idea, especially if they're going to quote it directly. I mean, it, we, give each other, we give each other ideas all the time. So it's not like, oh, every single idea should have a patent on it and be intellectual property and like that. That's, that's a whole mess. But if it's something that is that's especially the more work that's gone into it, then, you know, if I'm going to take a quote from if there's a book that was written, I don't know, 20 years ago, and I quote that 
book and I, I directly take those words word from word and I put it there, then even if the person who wrote it is dead, I still feel like out of respect, I have to credit that person um, or, you know, or, or at the minimum, put it in quotes so that I'm not writing it as if this was just totally my own original, original thought. I, I do think it's, uh, I think some of it is a respect thing. And then some of it is also a matter of, you know, if you were to profit off of it or, you know, to go on and sell, if, if you wrote a book and then I take your book and I print it and I start selling it. <laughs> I start selling it, right? Or you make a piece of music and it's like, oh, okay, someone just takes it and starts, you know, maybe they make some tiny little change to it and then they start making all this money. And then, yeah, like that's, uh, uh, yeah, that, that I don't know the right word for it, but it's certainly disrespectful. But also I don't think it's fair to the creator because they have put, they have put time and energy and talent and work into it. Um, yeah, those are my thoughts. It's not something I've spent that much time thinking of or been asked about before, but yeah, that's, uh, those are my thoughts on it. Yeah. I, I like it there. It mm. just reminded me that there's this also another function of like citing things, but also just, you know, being familiar with who made what, mm -hmm. especially in music, because if you, you know, if you know that that's a Jay Dilla sample, like happening in the back of someone's song and you tell mm -hmm. that to someone else well you've just communicated like someone who doesn't know jay dilla like you've just spread like some great you know artistic knowledge to, yeah. to some other people and it's the same thing in books like if you go to the back of the book and actually flip through the bibliography mm -hmm. your reading list is going to be laid out for you for the next year like you've got like you know 30 to 40 great like new books to go check out so it's, mm -hmm. it's it's kind of a useful, um, useful way to like create history. I think too. It's like a yeah. cool alternative. Yeah, agreed. And and I think it's important because I think it's also important to be able to trace things. To trace things, right? I mean, a lot of the knowledge we have now, it stems from you know thousands and there's people who haven't existed for thousands of years, and we still quote them. We still attribute stuff. You know that that person's not even alive. Like they're they're not aware, but it's good for people to be able to trace those ideas backwards and be like, Oh, okay, this came from, this came from this person. It was passed down to this person, this brand. Okay. And we're still here. And wow, this was written in X hundred BC by such and such person who has been, <laughs> been dead and been dead and gone for very, very long, but we can still trace that back all the way, all the way there. I think there's something, I think there's something powerful about that in the, in the sort of human story of us being able to do that or you could create something in 2021 and a hundred years from now 500 years from now people are like oh yeah that was that was alex mcshane who who came up with that or who, who thought of that idea and it's sort of immortalized in a way i think that's uh i think that's powerful i think it's also part of legacy as well i think as, as human beings um we we want to leave some type of legacy in some way shape or form and some of that through uh, of course, that can be through creating a family, but a lot of it also comes through our, our own work, creating something that lives on when you're gone and you've it's got your name on it. And it's like, cool, that's that's the thing that that's something I made there. Yeah. Now I'm wondering if I mean, you said it, I wonder if there's also like a biological impulse to just preserve mm. lineage there, you know? Yeah. Just just yeah. in any system that we can. It's just like, yeah, 
this. You got to. Yeah, I, I think it's. A, yeah, it's. I think it's a cool <laughs> idea. I, I. I think it's cool that we can trace, that we can trace things back. I mean, why? Why are people interested in their ancestry? I mean, it doesn't. On a superficial level, it doesn't really matter. Like, it doesn't really matter who your great great grandfather. Well, you know, it doesn't really. But it's cool and interesting to know, even though, you know, it's kind of inconsequential in a way. But it's still interesting. I think we have that thing wired in us to want to know, okay, how did we, how did we get here? Both, both literally and metaphorically, like how are we here? Uh, part of, same with history. I mean, part of learning history is to know what mistakes not to repeat. But also it's just interesting to know, okay, like why, why and how did things get to, to where they are, right? I mean, you, you, could, you could navigate through life perfectly with almost no knowledge of history, very little. Right, you don't really need to know it in terms of everyday life, but you're a much more fulfilled and a much more interesting person, and perhaps much better at navigating the potential future if you can understand the way things played out in the past and sort of how you got how we how we got here. Why is the why is the USA the way it is? What makes it a unique country? Why 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 is it why is English the why is English the main language here? Right. Like, why is this? Why is that? Why is that? And if you go back in history, you can be like, oh, OK, it's like that because of this and because of that. And then this happened and that happened. And that's kind of how we got here. Are there any last remarks you want to make on Bitcoin before I let you go? Because I've kept you. <laughs> <now>. <laughs> um, any last remarks on Bitcoin? No, I'm, I'm excited about it, man. I, I am very excited about Bitcoin and seeing where seeing where it all goes. I think it's one of the most interesting and important technologies that we have that is on the rise and is going to continue to become more prominent and more powerful and more widely adopted, particularly interested in seeing how it plays out in some developing countries. I know my background is originally from Nigeria, and I know that there's a lot of interest in Bitcoin over there, and there's a lot of problems with the standard currency system over there. So I'm kind of I'm kind of in the watch this space mode, you know. I'm I'm active, but I'm also just I'm just excited to see I'm excited to see where it all goes. And I don't get involved in the uh, I know there can be a lot of tribalism in it and all that. Like I don't I don't I try to avoid the uh, the hyper politics uh, within it itself. Um, but yeah, let's uh, let's wait and see. I'm I'm involved. I'm still I'm still stacking up my sets quietly. And uh, <laughs> we'll see how it all plays out.